and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Rob Henderson. Just a reminder, I've started a new weekly newsletter, the Mind and Matter newsletter that goes out every Friday. You can sign up in the link in the episode description or on my website, www.nickjacomis.com. And that newsletter is really a way for me to give people updates on the podcast, such as who the upcoming guests will be. I will also share interesting studies that have come out in the research world that I find interesting that I'm looking at, as well as links to interesting news articles that are science-related that I think are noteworthy. And I will also share things like excerpts and quotes from some of the books and other literature that I'm reading. So today's guest is Rob Henderson. He's actually a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. He studies psychology. Before that, he got his bachelor's degree at Yale University, where he studied with Paul Bloom, I believe. And Rob has a really interesting background, which we talked about. He started from a relatively unprivileged position in life and eventually made his way to first the military and then to Yale before moving on to his PhD program. So he sort of tells that story for us. And Rob is generally interested in topics related to human nature and human psychology. In particular, we talked a lot about human social status hierarchies, what social status is, why people seek it out, and this concept of luxury beliefs, which Rob has coined, why people actually believe the things they believe and how sometimes they believe things not necessarily for the belief per se, but as a way to signal their position in a social hierarchy and actually use their beliefs as a kind of weapon against people who they might view as competitors for social status. If you're interested in human nature or why people behave the way they behave, I encourage you to listen to this episode and also follow Rob on social media or sign up for his newsletter. I will link to all of those things in the episode description. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. Hey everyone, I want to take just a minute to tell you about an app I am partnering with called Readwise. Readwise is an app that organizes and helps you get the most out of your digital highlights. I use it to organize all the highlights I make in my digital books on my Kindle, and so if you're like me and you make a lot of highlights and you like to revisit them often to refresh your memory, Readwise is the perfect app. You can also take photos of any physical books you've highlighted and upload those. It also has cool features that allow you to share your favorite highlights and quotes from books on social media, and it syncs with note-taking apps like like Evernote, Notion, and Roam. You can tag, search, and organize your notes and highlights on Readwise, and it helps you connect ideas in new ways and retain more of what you read. So if you click the link in the episode description, you can get Readwise for free for two months when you sign up for their annual plan. That plan is only $7.99 per month, and it's a relatively new app, so they're adding new features often, and if you sign up for the annual plan today, you can lock in that price, which will stay at $7.99 even if the price increases in the future as they add more. So if you do a lot of highlighting and note-taking and you want a good way to organize all that information, check out the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Rob Henderson. Rob Henderson, thank you for joining me. Hey, Nick. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by just telling people what you do right now and what you're interested in, generally speaking? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, right now I am a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge in England, studying social and evolutionary psychology. Uh, my views or my 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 interests are, are sort of wide ranging. I'm interested in things like 
uh, social status, social class. Um, you know, my, a lot of my PhD work is sort of on, on moral judgment and morality, sort of loosely related to a lot of John, Jonathan Haidt's work. Um, yeah, so, so sort of all of that stuff. Um, I'm interested in sort of uh, conformity, social influence, um, you know, sort of how people can influence the behaviors of others by what they're doing and uh yeah sort of hierarchy prestige all of those all of those kinds of things i wonder if your interests have anything to do with the trajectory that you've taken to get where you're at because it's it's quite a unusual trajectory most people who make it to cambridge or to yale don't get there through the path that you did so can you give everyone sort of an overview of where your life started and how it sort of changed at some of these critical inflection points on your journey. Um, so, so to your question, yeah. Um, you know, like you said, so, so, you know, currently I'm studying at Cambridge before this, I studied psychology at Yale as an undergrad, um, was a research assistant there under Paul Bloom in his lab. And, you know, before all of this, before I sort of entered these kind of fancy universities, my life was a lot different. Um, so to just back, you know, way, way up, um, yeah, I had this sort of circuitous path journey to to higher education. I was born in in Los Angeles uh, to my mother, who you know very quickly became addicted to drugs shortly after I was born. Uh, she was an immigrant from South Korea, and she succumbed to her addiction, so she was unable to care for me. Um, don't know who my father is; never met him, and so I was placed into foster homes in LA County when I was uh, three years old, spent a good portion of my early childhood sort of bouncing around uh, seven different foster homes in total. Um, you know, really didn't do well in school, was changing schools like every three to six months, uh, was just totally unfocused. Um, I was later adopted uh, into uh, this family, uh, moved in with them in, into a town called Northern Cal in Northern California called Red Bluff. Um, which is kind of this uh, more rural blue collar town uh, populations like 13,000 um, kind of uh, a lot of poverty in that area. The median household income when I moved there was like $27,000 median household income. Um, you know, pretty, pretty high uh, poverty rates, a lot of drug abuse, um, kind of a rundown area. My uh, adoptive parents, you know, they were, they were able to create a pretty stable home for me. Um, I had an adoptive sister too. I still do. Um, we grew close, but then, um, after a couple of years into the adoption, my adoptive parents divorced and that was pretty hard on me. My adoptive father was angry at my adoptive mother for, for, you know, initiating the divorce and subsequently severed ties with me and stopped communicating with me as a, as a way to get revenge, uh, on her. And, you know, that was just like another blow, um, had a lot of like these sort of challenging early life experiences, um, you know, both sort of economically and, and socially and emotionally. And later on, you know, sort of skipping through a little bit, but ended up joining the military as a way to just sort of get out of there, get out of all of the chaos that I was um, sort of ensconced in. And over time sort of matured and found my path there uh, after I enlisted. Um, sort of found my interest organically just through sort of picking up books, reading articles, watching lectures on YouTube, things like that, and discovered, uh, yeah, this is, this is where my interests lie in sort of behavioral science, psychology, these kinds of things, social science in general. And yeah, I went to Yale in the GI Bill and sort of, uh, yeah, that's a long story short. So you eventually went to Yale and then you made it to Cambridge where you're at today. As you were 
going through these different phases in your life, what were some of the more salient differences that you observed among people in these different segments of society, especially in terms of how they expressed or signaled to each other what they valued and how they communicated with each other? Yeah, I mean, so when I got to Yale, I was I, I came there, you know, I literally had gotten out of the military in August and started school in September. So like, you know, just a couple weeks later, after I separated from military, I was a little bit older, came from a completely different background. I mean, there was this uh, pretty popular uh, article in the New York Times a couple of years ago, which found, you know, the, just basically the the wealth disparity among students at elite universities. There are more students at at places like Yale, more students from the top one percent than the bottom 60 percent. Um, so it's basically like surrounded by, um, you know, some of the wealthiest, you know, people from the wealthiest families in the country. Uh, and I, yeah, I was just sort of curious, like, you know, what are these people like? What are they doing? Um, what are they interested in? And, you know, I ended up coming up with this term uh, um, just sort of organically. You know, I, I was reading a, a little bit of like Thorsten Veblen's work, the economist and sociologist from the late 19th century, and how he had, you know, sort of observed how the elites of his time displayed their social status through luxury goods, through sort of their material wealth, um, wearing, you know, tuxedos and evening gowns and taking up these costly ho uh, hobbies, you know, playing golf, going beagling, um, you know, having butlers and servants and all these things. And one thing that I noticed right away when I got to Yale that kind of surprised me was how uh, they look like normal college students on the outside. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know just from looking at them um, that they were students at at uh, at sort of this rich university, ex except in the winter. Like at that point, uh, Canada Goose jackets were really popular, and I remember when <laughs> I looked up the price of Canada Goose jackets, it just blew my mind because like the cost of those that was like you know it's like eight or nine hundred dollars, which is equivalent to when I first enlisted. That was like a month's paycheck, like nine hundred dollars. So I was like just blown away that they would buy this this jacket that you know wasn't really that much better than like you know I don't know a North Face or something like that. Um, but Anyway, but, but generally speaking, they were kind of like, you know, materially not that different. I noticed like just in general that rich people don't necessarily look wealthier. If you walk down, um, you know, I took a lot of trips to New York uh, and you know, if you walk around, you can't you don't always necessarily know just by looking who uh, the rich people are and maybe who the middle class and, and lower income people are just from looking at them. Whereas if you walked through New York 100 years ago, it was very easy to say, like, that's the rich guy. And, you know, that's that's someone who's who's not. Um, but there was something different, uh, you know, in the ways that they talked, in their viewpoints about like, in, you know, important social and political issues. Um, yeah, the people I interacted with, I had a, a lot of strange experiences. And, and over time, I came up with this term luxury beliefs, which are um, ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And you know, adopting sort of unconventional views, these are ways to sort of distance themselves from um, ordinary people, from middle-class people, people who didn't attend universities, who don't keep up with the fashionable periodicals and, you know, don't listen to, to podcasts and these kinds of things. So um, these luxury beliefs, you know, we can get into specific examples, but my claim is that nowadays uh, you can predict much more someone's social class from their views on a, on a handful of, of you know, political or social topics than you can just from um, what they happen to be wearing or carrying with them at that time. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Before we get into examples and unpack that a little bit more, let's talk about social status more generally. So from your perspective, from a psychologist's perspective, how would you define 
what social status is. We all have an intuitive notion of it, but let's put a definition to it. Uh, yes. So, so there, I mean, even in, even in the, the psychology, psychological research, there's, there's some debate about what social status means. Uh, I remember for a while there was like this debate about, you know, the difference between social status and power. Power, I think now is viewed as control of resources, which isn't necessarily the same thing as status. Uh, Joseph Henrik and others have defined, you know, they sort of delineated status or broken it down into prestige versus dominance. Um, you know, sort of prestige is freely, freely conferred status that I sort of give it to you because I admire you versus dominance, which is, I guess, sort of more associated with power, which is, um, you know, I defer to you because I'm a little bit afraid of you or something like that. But I think generally, at least the way that I use it, it's um, respect and admiration from peers. You know, there's this idea of, of sociometric status. Uh, Michael Krauss and others at, at, uh, at Yale have used this term uh, in some of their research. So one of their interesting findings, uh, they call it the local ladder effect, but they found that um, in terms of uh, happiness, um, you, you know, the, 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 a lot of focus is paid to, or attention is fo you know, focused on um, you know, income, you know, the relationship between income and low income and happiness. But what they found is that sociometric status or respect and admiration from peers is a much stronger predictor of a person's happiness than their socioeconomic status, at least in, you know, the U.S. context where, you know, generally speaking, even like, you know, really poor people or working class people, they still, you know, very few of them are, are sort of on the brink of starvation. So once you sort of have that minimal level of material sustenance, then um, the way that you're looked upon by, uh, by your peers, that becomes much more important for you in terms of your well-being and your happiness. And so... Uh, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I would define status. Interesting. So mm -hmm. we all have an intuitive notion of status. Everyone wants to have high status within their local environment. This mm -hmm. seems to be baked in given that we're such highly social primates. What do we know about how far back this goes? Do we see this kind of fixation on social rank in pre-industrial hunter-gatherer tribes and non-human primates? Yeah, I mean, I so I recently wrote this long form review of uh, of now it's become one of my favorite books called Hierarchy in the Forest by Christopher Bame, I think is how you pronounce his last name, B-O-H-E-H-M. Um, he's an anthropologist, I think at UCLA. Uh, and this book is, you know, he compiles all of this research from anthropologists and psychologists and others, um, basically looking at the sort of archaeological, anthropological records. Um, and along, along with observations from modern hunter-gatherer communities uh, in Brazil and Africa, Papua New Guinea, um, and basically finds uh, consistent patterns that uh, people care a lot about their social rank within, within their uh, communities. And there's this sort of, I mean, it's interesting, these communities tend to be quite egalitarian, at least uh, among adult male members. Um, but it's not because... Um, they love peace so much or like they love equality. It's really uh, this sort of like constant tension and this uh, this relentless focus on um, trying to sort of make sure that you never slip too low and making sure that others never go too high. Um, and you know, BAME offers some uh, examples from uh, like hunting troops uh, among hunter-gatherer communities and how, you know, these anthropologists will speak to them and how they'll have these practices um, where, you know, if, if a hunter happens to take down a large animal, uh, immediately all of his peers start making fun of him and tell him how the animal actually wasn't that big and how that actually wasn't such a skillful throw and how when you were running, you looked like a little bit funny when you were running and immediately start cutting him down. 
And the reason for this is that they don't want uh, the skillful hunters to uh, to get big heads. They don't want them to become arrogant because I guess, you know, this idea is that, you know, once they become too arrogant, then they will start to, you know, exercise dominance over over their peers, perhaps try to monopolize more resources or try to, you know, take another man's wife. Um, and so there's this sort of tacit kind of uh, uh, cooperative uh, idea here where everyone is uh, trying to check everyone else. Um, and of course, like, you know, among chimpanzees, you know, you see a lot of battles for rank, uh, social dominance there as well. And it's, it's much more overt among, among a lot of the primates, uh, non-human non uh, apes. So, and, and then across like uh, human societies, we see this as well. Um, one of the things that interested me um, to kind of go back to your earlier question was uh, the finding that, and this has been found uh, in a couple of different studies now that in, in the U.S., the that interest in obtaining status is correlated with current social status. So in other words, the higher status you happen to be in terms of sort of income, occupational prestige, and so on, the more interested those people tend to be in, in either preserving or, or enhancing their status, which to me, that was a little bit counterintuitive because you know, I guess I would have predicted in advance, maybe the people who are sort of at the bottom, who maybe don't have much status, don't have much influence or, or wealth, that those would be the people most, most interested in sort of obtaining it and, and gaining more of it. But it's actually the people at the top who, who are most interested in social status, um, which I think like for me, that put a, a lot of puzzle pieces into place uh, based on sort of the anxiety that I saw uh, among uh, sort of top, top college students and top graduates. Yeah, that's interesting tie into the whole mental health thing, because mm -hmm. I, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but I know that generally speaking at colleges, including or even especially the elite colleges, levels of anxiety and depression have been going up quite a bit over the last few years. And it's one of those things that's perhaps a bit counterintuitive because you're talking about a population that has or seems to have all of the things one would think satisfy the needs as people that we that we have such that we don't need to be anxious or depressed you're at a top college you're getting an education you're material materially better than most people and yet we're seeing this increase in anxiety so can you unpack that a little bit more yeah well so yeah i mean i think that's super interesting i mean it matches my observations too um and and there's a lot of research on this as well that uh, among both undergrads and and uh, grad students, PhD students, yeah, the rates of anxiety and depression are are on the rise. Um, I just saw this. Uh, it, was, it was reported in the New York Times. These findings from uh, I think it was a team of researchers at Yale actually finding that in the past, um, sort of lower income adolescents reported higher rates of anxiety and depression. Which to me, you know, of course that makes sense. Uh, if you're lower income, you just experience more challenges in your daily life. Uh, but I think starting in the 90s, it's, it reversed to where affluent adolescents from sort of middle and upper middle class homes uh, reported higher rates of depression, anxiety, drug use, um, all these kinds of harmful or risky behaviors. And yeah, I I was thinking about what this could possibly, you know, why what reasons there could be for this, you know, why was there this this reversal? And I think one possibility goes back to sort of what I was saying in the beginning. I think uh, in the past. Um, lower income meant like more, like it, it was more serious, the kind of deprivation that, that people experienced up until fairly recently, I, you know, perhaps because of like, you know, sort of uh, state benefits and all these kinds of things, maybe, maybe step in and helped a little bit. But in the past, if you were poor in poverty, like that was serious, like maybe you actually couldn't eat that day. But once you reach that level of, 
you know, now if you're lower income in the U.S., um, you still are not quite as poor as someone maybe 50 or 60 years ago uh, in your sort of, you know, income decile or something. Uh, and so for them, like now that they've met that level, now they don't have to worry as much about material uh, uh, deprivation. And in this case, um, for them, yeah, maybe they don't have that same pressure. Whereas for the upper class, I think there was like back when, you know, a lot of people complain about the meritocracy, but I think that in decades past when the social classes were more isolated and and there was less permeability between them, when, you know, if you were an upper class person, like if you went to Harvard, say, um, odds are you came from a well-to-do family, like you're going to do okay no matter what, like you're sort of locked in to your social status. Whereas today, like there's, there's more permeability. You can rise and fall a little bit more, I think. Um, also like in the past, if you were born to the right family and went to the right school, I think that was enough to some degree back then. Whereas now that's like, that gets your foot in the door, right? Like getting a, getting the right degree. And so there seems to be much more pressure among, among young people as well, that just because you get into a good college, that's not, that doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're set because all of your peers are, are bright and ambitious too. And so they're all interested in getting the right internships, getting into the right law schools and so on. I mean, you know, maybe maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but one of the things that I that I saw that was that was kind of funny. It confused me at first at Yale was um, I would see students um, sort of saying things like investment banks were emblematic of capitalist depression. Th- same with consultancies too, and you know, sort of listing all of the reasons why you should never work at one of these evil corporations or companies. And then weeks later, I would see those same exact students at a recruitment session for Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And I, after a couple of instances of that, of, of seeing that, I, I was, you know, I would wonder like, why are they doing this? Like, why would on the one hand you would say like, oh, it's evil to work here, but then you're trying to get a job there. Mm-hmm. Over time, my my interpretation of this is that they were trying to undercut their competitors. I think like it's, it's so cutthroat to yeah. get a position I, like that. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of these ideas that you've been articulating and that I've read from you, they remind me, uh, they, they, they make a lot of sense of things in retrospect from my college days. So this is probably similar to your observations at Yale. I went to college at the University of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and I pretty much immediately went into what you would call the mechanistic sciences. So I, I was taking what the average student would probably call fairly difficult courses that most people choose not to take unless they are weird like me, um, or you're really into you know science. And I was a first-generation college student, and I struggled to pay for college. So, like every semester, I was always late. I was always like trying to deal with that before, mm. like actually dealing with my courses and my my academic responsibilities. That partly, I think, blinded me to to noticing some of the other stuff that was going around me. But one of the things that was very apparent on day one is I got to the campus in Madison, Wisconsin, and you could see, but people would also just tell you, they would talk about the fact that there were two classes of students at the Hmm. University of Wisconsin. One was called the townies and the other were called the coasties. And a townie referred to someone who was typically a Wisconsin native, meaning they were paying in-state tuition. They were local. They were from the surrounding culture, et cetera, et cetera. A coastie was someone who was typically from the East or the West Coast. They were paying out-of-state tuition, and that was not a big deal for them because they came from a wealthy family, and they dressed different, they talked different, they looked different. And I sort of didn't pay attention to that. But one thing I did notice was that on average, it was quite clear that the ratio of 
those two types of people would be different depending on the type of course you were in. So for example, there were a couple of cases where I took classes either by mistake because I thought they satisfied a requirement or because I had to take them for, for degree reasons, even though they were, they were outside of my interest areas. So I would take, say, a communications class or a sociology class or something like that that I didn't necessarily want to take but had to. And I would notice that the ratio was quite different. You would get a lot more students in those courses who were from the coasts, who were wealthier, who had some of the visible signals of that, and who also behaved differently in ways I couldn't quite put my finger on. And I would see many fewer of them in, you know, an organic chemistry course or something like that. And I, I never really wrapped my head around it, but, you know, the courses where I would see more of these people from the coasts or, or in that class of student, they were much easier courses. I remember sitting in these classes and being like ready to go. And then like after the first few weeks, I'm like, wow, this is completely effortless. I don't have to actually do anything except show up to class and I I will get an A in this class. But I always wondered if the students taking those types of courses more were much more focused on fighting battles of status, really. I didn't didn't really think of it this way, inside their social circles. Because I did notice that there was kind of this almost viciousness to uh, becoming popular in those types of circles that wasn't apparent in in the other class of students. And it really seems to echo some of the things you were talking about. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I now you have me wondering, you know, I, I, I entered Yale at an unusual time. Uh, it was basically right when the student protests erupted uh, as a result of an email, uh, one of the one of the faculty members sent to her students. Um, basically, you know, the charges were that she was defending cultural appropriation and all these kinds of things. And I remember, um, you know, I had this really tense interaction uh, with a with, with a young woman, this female student, uh, and I and I, I was basically just trying to say, like, I have no idea why people are so upset. I read that email. I just didn't get it. You know, I. I had come from a completely different world. And so trying to understand like what, what it was that was so offensive about what this faculty member had said was just confusing to me. Um, and this young woman just said that I was too privileged to understand and uh, what, why people were so upset. Um, later I found out that, that this person, you know, grew up in, in Greenwich, which is like a really, like one of the wealthiest zip codes in, in the country went to, went to Exeter. <laughs> like, yeah. So it was just a strange thing to be called privileged by someone like that. But, but I, now I'm wondering, like, are, are a lot of these people who played these hardcore status games, are they more likely to say, have a parent who went to college who come from sort of the upper middle or upper class? Whereas the people like, I mean, you know, just sort of anecdotally, the people I remember who were kind of either confused or, or questioning a lot of the the activism that was going on on campus and, and calls for professors to be fired, a lot of them were kind of either first generation students or, you know, children of immigrants or just people who didn't necessarily, you know, come from places like Greenwich and didn't go to go to private school. Um, but so I, I think there might be something to that as well. And, and maybe, uh, you know, if you compare, say, the level of, of status games and, and that kind of thing at I don't know, please like maybe MIT or Caltech versus, you know, mm-hmm. Harvard or Yale or something. I'll bet there would be some differences, uh, even though I would imagine that, you know, the caliber of students are, are roughly the same or perhaps even even better at these sort of more STEM oriented schools. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, I think there is something something there, too. It's funny, the, the, the term you use, townies versus coasties. So 
So I've heard this uh, this term used here at Cambridge. So now I'm over here in England. It's like the class stuff here is just way more complex. I don't even try to try to examine it mm -hmm. because it's much older and 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 more layers to it. But but one thing that I that I learned here was uh, they have the this distinction between um, uh, town versus gown. So uh, the the town or the townies, I guess, are the people who live in Cambridge who sort of work here and operate the businesses and so on who grew up here. And then the gowns, I guess they, I don't know if they call them gownies, but, uh, but the gown types are like the students and people associated with the university, the scholars and so on. And I guess uh, there, there is this sort of historical tension both here at uh, Cambridge and, and over at Oxford as well. Um, and, and yeah, I, I noticed that uh, there isn't that much focus paid to the people who live here. I saw this at, at Yale as well, New Haven, which is where, Yale is is located is an extremely poor town, a lot of poverty, a lot of mental illness, homelessness, addiction. I, I lived downtown in New Haven. Um, so to get to class and back, I would walk through like a lot of a lot of poverty. And I just remember having you know, experiences like I go to Yale and I'd hear people talk about the importance of activism and all of these kinds of things, social justice. And then like I'd walk through, you know, a lot of homelessness and addiction and all this stuff. And I would think to myself, like, I don't know how serious these people really are. Like, there just seems to be this duplicity to it that it really, mm -hmm. I have no doubt that some of them are sincere, but I think a, a good portion of them are also mouthing the right words because it, it helps them boost their status in their local environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are certain words you can say that will instantly garner approval. Yeah. The, the last thing I want to say here before we move on, because I think we'll kind of loop back to this in a couple of different ways is... You know, at the University of Wisconsin, you know, there's these really two different castes of people almost, not necessarily one above the other, but I think the important observation is there was no overt segregation. There was only self-segregation by and large, mm. right? The, the one group would hang out with one group and the other group would hang out with the other group. And that was by choice. And so all of the social competition, therefore, was sort of within group. Mm. And I'm interested in this idea of sort of within group or within class competition, because I think a lot of the things that you're talking about or that we observe in this general area result not from people trying to compete or display superiority to those in, in sort of a lower ca caste, but actually competing mm. with those that are approximately equal to them in status. And, and I think we'll come back to that. But okay. you know, you've been talking about high status or elite individuals. You've mentioned that a couple of times. Again, we have an intuitive notion of what this might mean, but what would be the key determining factors that make someone high status or elite in society? You've already told us it's not strictly determined by wealth. Yeah. I mean, so this is also sort of a contentious debate. I mean, I, I was reading a little bit of uh, the sociological research on this as well about, you know, there are d discussions and debates between like status versus class. Like, is there a difference between social status versus social class and all these things? I mean, I, so the, the very first like book that I read about class uh, in, in America and, and like, this is sort of like uh, where like the, the way I tend to define it comes from a Paul Fussell's book uh, called, it's called Class, A Guide to the American Status System. I think it was written in like 1981 or something. Um, I mean, it's it's an incredible book. It's like a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, but it, it is like a, a very useful book, I think, to understand class. Some of the things are outdated, but generally uh, the way that he describes it is that, you know, for, for the lower class, um, they tend to define class strictly in terms of, of money or wealth. Uh, the more money you have, the higher class you are. And I kind of observed this too uh, when I was growing up. I remember, you know, I worked at this pizza joint when I was in high school washing dishes. And I would talk with my coworkers about, you know, like you know, striking it rich 
which it, it was all about, it was all about money. It was never about like, I can't wait to get into college and get a good education or something like that. You know, other, other things associated with class. It was really about money, you know, playing the lottery. A lot of my coworkers played the lottery, my, my family, some of, some of them played the lottery too. And really the interest was on like, how do I get a bigger bank account uh, by, you know, how do I buy a boat or a nicer car? Uh, material goods. And then Fussell says for the middle class, it's more about education. So sort of the rank of your college or, you know, what you studied, um, you know, did you, did you sort of stay in your local area or did you like, did you go away to college? You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, those, those are sort of markers of status too. Um, Which I guess like when you go away, that's sort of an indicator of how much money your parents have. But anyway, so that's the middle class is sort of education. And then for the upper class, it's not just money and education. Those things are important. But the final ingredient is... um, is your sort of habitus, your, uh, your, your taste, your habits, your preferences, the kinds of media you consume, the kinds of books you read. I guess today, you know, to update it would be, you know, which podcasts you listen to, what are the periodicals you read, uh, you know, your digital subscriptions, uh, which, you know, I guess maybe now which substacks you read, something like that. Um, so, so those, those three ingredients uh, are important. And what's interesting is that one of Fussell's claims is that you are sort of locked in to the, the class you were born into. So no matter what, uh, you are the class you you uh, happen to be born into. So, so I guess like for a fossil, someone like Mark Zuckerberg, uh, I think he was born into like an, an upper middle class family. I think his parents were professionals, but they weren't like exorbitantly rich. So even though Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, a, a gazillionaire, he is, is sort of culturally will forever be upper middle class. Um, whereas someone who was you know, born as like a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or something. I don't know, like one of these sort of dynasty waspy families or something, um, even if they aren't as rich as their great grandfather was or something. And maybe the family sort of uh, on a downward trajectory in terms of their social mobility, uh, they're still sort of upper class uh, in terms of their, their habits and tastes and so on uh, and the kinds of things that they do. So, so th- that's another interesting element of this as well is that, um, you know, there is like, economic mobility, you know, you can start off poor and, and maybe go to college and get a high paying job and so on. And so you're economically upwardly mobile, but sort of socially and culturally, you, you can't really break out of uh, whatever you're born into. At least this is the claim of Fussell and, and some others. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense though, behaviorally, right? A lot of behaviors and, and habits that we learn at a very young age really do get locked in, you know, mm-hmm. down to the way that we talk and, you know, pronounce phonemes and things like this. It's very, very difficult to shake the way that you talk and and the way that you express language after you go through puberty, basically. So it makes perfect sense to me that 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 would be the case. And this is probably related to the entire reason why we have terms like old money and, and new money. You know, mm. if you, you come into money, you still have these sort of habits and behaviors that are effectively locked in because it's so difficult to unlearn them or at least make them second nature in the way that the other behaviors would be for someone born into it. Mm, right, right. Yeah. Like you said, like, yeah, the, the way that people talk, um, the kinds of like, have like the, the foods that they like to eat, the music they like to listen to. Uh, yeah. A, a lot of the, um, like the sort of the cultural norms are, are hidden too. So if you didn't grow up around them, you don't necessarily know like the, the proper way to, to navigate them. Uh, and, and in some cases they may even be yeah, deliberately hidden in order to sort of filter out like who's an insider and who's an outsider. I remember I read this um, uh, this interview it was in the Atlantic with these two sociologists uh, discussing class, and and they gave this example of um, you know a, a lot of workplaces no longer have dress codes, 
uh, and and it's sort of seen ostensibly as this egalitarian uh, sort of upgrade of like, you know, in the past, you know, you had to wear these clothes, but now you can wear whatever you want and it's sort of freeing. But actually, one of the points that these two sociologists made, uh, their names escaped me, but it, it was basically that um, the norms still exist. They just went underground. And now people are are able to pinpoint like who can pick up on what those uh, covert norms are and who can't. And this is another way of creating sort of insiders versus outsiders. Uh, whereas if you have overt uh, and clear dress codes, then anyone can fit in, right? Like, if you, oh, you have to wear a suit and tie, you get the suit and tie and you can fit in. But now you don't know, like, what's the right way to dress casually? They give this example of, um, they were talking about a media company, I think, or uh, sort of like television studios or something. And they said that there was no dress code and there was this guy who worked there who came from a working class family. He was this black guy who would, I, I think he wore like a tracksuit or something. And, you know, I guess like people there, like they had, you know, they didn't like that, but they never told him. And over time, like the guy just left and he, and he left, you know, he left the job because even though the dress code was casual or, or no dress code, he didn't dress casually in the right way and ended up, you know, not, not really fitting in. And I think like there are a lot of instances of this of like, you know, we, we try to be more egalitarian, but we end up it, it ends up sort of backfiring in some ways because, you know, back to our earlier you know uh, uh, point that status is always sort of pervasive. And if you try to get rid of it, it will sort of manifest in a different way. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in this idea that a lot of the taboos we enforce are organic and they're covert. And, and I wonder if mm -hmm. that's a feature that is sort of naturally baked in. One of the things this reminds me of is people's perception, or at least people's what people will say their own status is. I'm thinking here of the statistics where you know you ask, and, and this is Americans. You ask Americans, are you lower class, middle class, or upper class? And some extraordinarily high percentage of them say middle class. So the majority of the people that are actually upper class or lower class identifies middle class together with all of the people that are middle class. So there's this tendency for everyone to to be seen as, you know, just like everyone else, even though we all know that that's not the case for everyone. So is there something interesting going on there with what people behaviorally display? I mean, in terms of their other behaviors versus what they will explicitly identify as? Yeah, I mean, I've seen those those stats as well. That like you know somehow every American, you know, whether you make you know thirty grand or three hundred grand, you're a middle class person. Uh, I, I saw a lot of this in undergrad too. Like I, that was the first time that I, you know someone could tell me, you know, oh my my mother is a doctor and my father's a lawyer, and you know they're, they're, we may make a million dollars a year, but we're sort of like middle or you know something like that, middle class, maybe upper middle class, and that just blew my mind um, to hear you know that you could make six figures and consider yourself a middle class person. I mean, you know, even if you make a hundred grand, I think that's twice as much as like the median household income in America. Um, and yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that is, I think, yeah, sort of uh, you're comparing yourself to your peers, right? So if you're making a hundred grand a year, you're not comparing yourself to the median American. You're com mm -hmm. comparing yourself to your friends who are in the sort of same social category as you, same education level, the people you graduated high school with or college with or something like that. Um, and I, I think there's also like this element of uh, upward social comparison. Uh, so this is, you know, sort of findings from social psychology that, you know, people tend not to really think too much about the people below them. And they spend a lot of time preoccupied with those above them. Mm -hmm. So even if you're an upper middle class person doing well in your life, 
you're not comparing yourself to, you know, people who are living in poverty or people who are just sort of getting by. You're comparing yourself to the people who are a little above you. You're comparing yourself to the millionaires. And if you're a millionaire, you're comparing yourself to the billionaires. Mm -hmm. And so basically everyone except the billionaires think of themselves as middle class. Um, and think, yeah, go on. Yeah. Oh, I, I think there, there's actually this, it strikes me. So when we're talking about intra-class competition and this positive correlation between how high your status currently is and how much you want more status and some of the things you're just mentioning, it actually mm -hmm. starts to make sense to me when I think about two things. One, just the, the statistics of a normal distribution. And two, mm -hmm. um, something like Dunbar's number, this idea mm -hmm. that, you know, even though we live in this hyper-connected world, we're still these social primates that think in terms of, you know, the size of hunter-gatherer tribes. So you can only know, mm -hmm. like, you know, the names of something like 150 people-ish, and you're really only going to have close relationships with, say, 15 people, what, whatever it is, but, you know, a relatively small number. And so if you think in socioeconomic terms and you just look at the normal or normal-ish distribution of incomes, as your income goes up, it obviously goes up, but also the variance of that of the bell curve also goes up. So if you're comparing yourself to the 15 people closest to you, as your income goes up, the difference between you and those 15 people will also necessarily go up. And so you can see how it leads to this runaway effect where you become more and more obsessed with how you're stacking up relative to the people next to you. And naturally, of course, you're going to want to ascend, not descend. That's fascinating, actually. Okay, so the idea here is that, like, if you're, you know, sort of, uh, you know, working class person, the close fifteen people, you know, there's not going to be that much, much range. You know, if you make, you know, twenty five thousand dollars a year, the richest person in your group might make, you know, thirty seven thousand or something like that. But if you're in the in the very top and you make two hundred thousand, you know, your your best friend in that fifteen uh, person group might make, you know, several million. Uh, and so even though all of you are, are well off and so on that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I can imagine that there is, uh, like that sort of amplifies or cultivates, uh, more and more status anxiety, uh, among the upper class too, or the upper middle and the upper class that they're, they're constantly feeling like they're falling behind because the higher up they go, the sort of richer their social circle becomes something like that. Um, yeah, th that makes a lot of sense to me too. Uh, Yeah. Well, and I think there's also sort of this selection effect too going on where uh, a lot of the the top universities are selecting for people who are interested in status. I mean, just to begin with, if you're going to apply mm -hmm. to a top university, you know, whether for undergrad or grad school, you are the kind of person who's sort of, you know, at, at least somewhat interested in things like prestige and status and respect and those kinds of things. Uh, and so you're already sort of con conditioning on that as well. And so, yeah, and then those kinds of people are, are then surrounded by those just like them. And you can constantly feel that sense of like, like falling more and more behind. And I think it's not just money, though. Like, I'm thinking about like sort of uh, social habits as well. I was uh, talking to this uh, friend of mine who was saying that, you know, his, his friend had read the, um, you know, this sort of widely cited statistic, something like 40 to 50 percent of marriages and in divorce. And then he said, you know, I'm looking at like my entire social circle, you know, a bunch of guys in their thirties and, and none of us are, are divorced. And, you know, some of us have been married for 10 years, there's no divorces. So I don't know like how this stat exists. And, you know, my friend told him like, like, look, like if you look at, if you break it down by education, then it's a completely different story. Like basically all, all of us have postgraduate degrees mm -hmm. and among people with postgrad degrees, no one gets divorced. It is like extremely rare for that to 
happen. So I think like, you know, often when you look at the sort of overall averages, it can obscure some of the nuances in terms of social class or education or those kinds of things too. Um, and yeah, you can live in like a completely different world just by sort of what social class you happen to be in, not, not just economically, but, but sort of uh, socioculturally as well. Mm-hmm. Before we circle back to luxury beliefs, let's just talk about luxury goods as a transition yeah. into that. We all, again, probably have a, an intuitive notion of what a luxury good is, but I'm wondering if you can comment on the fact that, well, let's talk about clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. There's an entire spectrum of, of clothing out there and some of it's more expensive and trendier and some of it's less. Can you talk about the phenomenon that we'll all be familiar with that you know, fashion trends are constantly changing and turning over? What's mm-hmm. actually driving the change in trends in fashion, say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, my understanding of this is that you know, basically there's like the sort of the trend setting group, the sort of, uh, uh, I forgot the, the term for this, but basically this small group of people who kind of wear something un- unusual or unique. And then this sort of trickles throughout the upper class. And then over time, it sort of uh, trickles downward to, to the rest of the social classes who adopt this look as it becomes more and more affordable. I mean, uh, like even things like, you know, to bring back the Canada Goose example, like now you're seeing, because you can buy these, these jackets secondhand, or, you know, people are borrowing them or giving them away, like they've sort of diluted their value somewhat. So in 2015, those were the hottest uh, thing you could wear in the winter, at least in New England. And now they're kind of like, you know, they're not that that fancy anymore. You know, when when uh, Ivy League students were wearing them, they were really special. But now anyone can get them. And you know, now they're not such a hot ticket item. So I think there is this, this sort of element of like, you know, they're the trendsetters, they uh, establish something that's cool, and then other people adopt the look. And then over time, it's sort of trickles through and and sort of uh the next the the new cycle starts with with whatever the next item happens to be um i think this is like you know a lot of things are like this you know ipods too i remember for for when when ipods first came out those things were like you know they were super expensive only like rich people could have them Uh, there were like a couple of uh, a couple of rich kids that i knew who had them and then you know over time like once they become more affordable and like the newer models came out and you can afford an older model and now like having an ipod is like nothing uh, or an iPhone or whatever happens to be. So all of these things um, sort of have these these life cycles in that sense for 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 luxury goods and for fashion. And, and I think luxury beliefs work, work in similar ways. Can you provide now some clear examples of things that you, you think are good examples of luxury beliefs that you've observed? Uh, yeah, I mean, so so the I, I wrote an essay. Uh, the very first one I wrote about luxury beliefs, um, you know, it was this example. I had this conversation with a former classmate of mine uh, she told me that her, so basically she told me that monogamy was outdated and that marriage is kind of this passe thing and that, you know, maybe we should, we should move beyond it. And, and, uh, you know, I was like, okay, that's, that's an unusual belief. You know, these are things that I, I didn't really hear in the military, things that I didn't hear growing up. Uh, but not uncommon to hear among, uh, graduates of places like Yale and, and so I asked her, like, but what do you plan to do? Like, you know, first I asked her, well, what, what, like, what was your family like? Did you come from that kind of family of like, I don't know, open marriage or polygamy or something? And she said, no, no, I was raised by, you know, mom and a dad. And then I asked her, well, what do you plan to do? Are you planning to live, you know, sort of that kind of uh, open marriage or, or not get married? And she said, no, no, eventually I'd, I'd like to, you know, find someone and settle down and have a family. You know, I want to get married, but, but it shouldn't have to be for everyone. And I noticed that like this kind of belief was pervasive uh, uh, among a, a lot of kind of highly educated people that they espouse like one set of views, but then the way that they actually live their own lives 
um, is is sort of completely different. Uh, they're they're almost like living the opposite of what they say. I heard this uh, this interesting phrase. You know, a, a lot of affluent people they uh, they walk the fifties and talk the sixties, and I, you know, I, so so I think this this idea that all family structures are exactly the same and that, that monogamy or marriage is outdated. That's one example of this because if you look at who actually gets married. Uh, and who stays married and doesn't get divorced, it's disproportionately highly educated people. Um, you know, like the example with my friend that I gave earlier. Whereas if you look at uh, working class and more lower income people, um, the marriage rates are, are low. And then of those who do get married, the divorce rates are much higher. Single parenthood is very high. When I look at um, the the family structures of, of you know, the, the way that I grew up within all of my best friends from high school, uh, literally none of us were raised in sort of stable two-parent homes. Um, you know, friends were raised by grandmothers or, you know, like a single mom or a step-parent or something like that, um, or foster homes. And the friends that I made through through college and, and here at Cambridge, uh, like those kinds of family structures are just unheard of. Everyone lived with, with, with two parents. Um, so so that's, that's one. I think, uh, you know, there, there are a couple of others, but I think that one to me was uh, that was like the light bulb moment because I it reminded me of this other experience that I had uh, in, in a class where uh, the professor asked um, all of the students, uh, you know, how many of you were raised by both of your birth parents? And out of 20 something students, it was just me and one other student who said that we were not. Uh, it was it was an anonymous survey, so I, I know it was just me and, and someone else in that classroom said that they were raised in a different kind of uh, family structure, um, and that that was the first that was actually the first time that I realized that something was different uh, in terms of the way that people grew up versus you know the way that uh, my my peers at, at college grew up versus my peers say in high school. There was something completely different, not just in terms of economics, in terms of how much money we had, which was like clearly like there was a difference there, but then also like more subtly. Uh, the family structures that we came from, the kinds of beliefs, the the importance of education, uh, yeah, this this emphasis on uh, on education, it's kind of different too. Like broadly speaking, I noticed that highly educated people love talking about the importance of education and how we need to get more poor kids into college. But then when I give specific examples, like the the attitude tends to change. I, I had this conversation with the student here at Cambridge um, about a friend of mine in high school. Uh, this guy, he could have been recruited to play. F- school in california i think sacramento state uh and i remember he was failing a class and all he had to do was attend this makeup course over spring break two-week course if he just showed up to class and i think got it got a b then it would have like kept his gpa at the right level and he could have been recruited to play football in college uh he went for like the first two days and then we spent the rest of spring break just like getting drunk and screwing around and like we just got in a lot of trouble and you know, at the time, like I didn't care, he didn't care. But looking back, I realized like, what were his parents doing? Like, why didn't they make sure that he was like, you know, on track to go to college? I told my friend here at Cambridge about this. And she said like, yeah, but like, you know, maybe, maybe he wasn't meant to go, you know, if like, that's what he wanted to do, if that's what he was interested in. And, you know, maybe he just didn't want to go to college. Like, maybe that's okay. Like this sort of sympathetic, non-judgmental attitude. And then I asked her, well, like, what if that was your son? You know, like, what if your son was like, all he had to do was sit in a desk for two weeks and he could go to college? Like, what would you do? Uh, And she said, like, oh, I would make sure he was in that desk or I would threaten to kill him if he didn't go to class. She she immediately goes from she immediately goes from 
everyone can do what they want to basically fascism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like this totally free for all, like, oh, you know, it's okay. People can do what they want. We shouldn't force anyone. But when it's her kid, it's suddenly. And so I think there's this like for, for everyone else, I adopt this non-judgmental. You shouldn't get married. You shouldn't go to class. You can do whatever you want. But then when it comes to my family and the people that I care the most about, um, the standards are are much more strict. So I think these are just like like a couple of examples. Uh, but the underlying principle here, I think, is is this sort of non-judgmental attitude for others. Um, and then for me, it's you know much more strict. But there there are others too. I mean, we can get into like you know the the craziness of like defund the police and all this stuff. Like there are a lot of like luxury beliefs popping up. Uh, well, yeah. Recently. What's what's your take on that? And so so let's have you talk about that luxury belief as you see it. And then I'm wondering if you can comment on, you know, if you're right, if these are luxury beliefs analogous to luxury goods that are fashionable and go in cycles, that would predict that these luxury beliefs will cycle in and out as well. Meaning the ones that we see today will go away at some point, probably not that too far into the future and new ones will replace them. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so the, the defund the police thing, I mean, when that started kicking off, I mean, I was like, just totally shocked by it at first. And, you know, but then like, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, it's Twitter. It's like, you know, people who who spend a lot of time on Twitter tend to be sort of affluent, highly educated people, just statistically speaking. I mean, Pew recently came out with some some data on this, that they're much more likely to have college degree and earn, you know, a certain level of income. But then I wondered, like, what about people, you know, if you, if you break it down by income, are there differences in support for this defund the police idea? And fortunately, YouGov, uh, shared some data on this. I had to do a little bit of digging, but I found it. And basically, the the group that is most in support of defund the police are people in the highest income category, um, something like something like thirty three or thirty five percent. Versus the other income categories, it's like you know twenty percent or something like that lower. So so generally speaking, the the people who have the most money are most in support of defunding the police. And of course, like this to me is like the definition of a luxury belief. You know, this is uh, an opinion that confer status on the upper class, but will inflict costs on lower classes. You know, if you say defund the police, it makes you look good to your highly educated and affluent peers. It makes you look, I don't know, edgy or progressive or something. Um, but if you literally get rid of the police, if you eliminate the police, then the people who suffer the most are going to be poor people. Um, the poor are already disproportionately the targets of all kinds of crimes. I mean, it's interesting. We spend a lot of time focusing on how poverty can sort of give rise to, to criminal behavior. You know, can if someone grows up poor, maybe they're more likely to commit criminal acts. But who are those acts committed against, disproportionately against people in their neighborhood, other poor people? And, you know, it's interesting. We have these categories of, you know, rich, middle class and poor. But then if you sort of look look at it in a more sort of granular level, the people who tend to commit crimes are young men and the targets of crimes tend to be the elderly and tend to be women. So it's sort of like, you know, do we care about poor elderly people? Do we care about poor women? Those are the targets of, of crimes. Um, I looked at some data, I think this is from the FBI, that um, uh, the the people in the lowest income category compared to compared to the highest, you know, there's something like seven times more likely to be victims of, of aggravated assault and robbery, 20 times more likely to be victims of sexual assault. Like, basically, if you're a poor person, the likelihood that you're going to be a victim of a crime is like astronomical compared to sort of middle and upper class people. And when we talk about like defunding the police, it's just like, I guess that totally gets glossed over. And, and then, of course, like, if you look at communities, and you see that, like, you know, most, like, 
non-white people are, are in favor of either the current level of police or more policing. Um, yeah, I think defund the police is just a classic example of this. Uh, there's like a more, um, so, so yeah. And then your point, like this, this, I'm not sure will actually trickle down because like, it's so costly, I think to not have police that I'm not, I'm not really sure that this is going to become like a fashionable belief. At least, you know, we'll see. Well, I, I I'm mean, skeptical of this one. In my observation, I think it can certainly trickle, you know, one step down, but not all the way down. Mm-hmm. You know, I, one I step meaning like, like, like upper, upper middle class, middle class. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's certainly been my observation, at least living in a cosmopolitan area. Mm-hmm. But I where w- are you? I'm in Seattle. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 So it's like, you know, I don't think we need to get into, into it too much. But yeah, Seattle, you've got a very huge spectrum of people. You definitely see that belief on people people who are higher status, socioeconomically speaking. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not reserved solely for the upper quintile in my observation. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're not, you know, you're not really seeing any of the homeless people at these rallies. They're too busy living their life on the street, struggling day to day. But I wonder if some of these beliefs will cycle. That, that does seem to be a prediction. You know, if I, if I call what you're talking about your theory, I think that would be a prediction of it, right? That the luxury beliefs would have to change because they are a mechanism for actually displaying your difference from other people. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so this is, this is something that I guess there, there is some nuance here. Like on the one hand, you want to like, like if you're an upper class person who is displaying your status through luxury beliefs, you want to distinguish yourself from the, from the little people, you know, from, from people who are not in your same social class. Um, you don't want to be mistaken from like a middle class or working class person, but there's also something going on, like, like, you know, sort of this intra-class status signaling too, like you mm-hmm. had mentioned before. So I think within the upper class, um, you know, the, the sort of trendsetters within that group, they say defund the police and then it, you know, sort of trickles to like, you know, the, the more sort of, uh, I don't know, conventional upper middle class, you know, the sort of suits or whatever, the, the kind of people who work nine to fives or something, um, once, you know, I don't know, executives and lawyers start saying defund the police, then the sort of uh, the trendsetters and the fashionable types, uh, you know, now that they see that uh, the suits are, are, you know, broadcasting that slogan, then it's like, okay, well, now I have to distinguish myself uh, as a trendsetter. So it doesn't necessarily, I think, have to trickle all the way down to the middle and lower classes. Once it trickles throughout that sort of, you know, upper quintile, say, or, mm-hmm. or the upper two quintiles then you can sort of shift into into a different uh shift over to a different belief um yeah so so yeah it's interesting right like there is this sort of like on the one hand does it trickle down throughout the classes or does it trickle throughout like with, within that class mm-hmm. yeah and you know i'm struck by so so these beliefs that you're calling luxury beliefs they tend to be they tend to have a a moralistic character to them so not only mm-hmm. are you taking a stance or making an observation on the way society is or perhaps should be, but there's this sort of extra step where, you know, to believe it is to be better or, or righteous and to not believe it is actually to make you lesser. And in some sense, what you're telling us is this, this might be even more literal, more literal than you might otherwise think. And it it strikes me that it has this moralistic character to it. It reminded me of something that you posted at some point recently that I saw, and it was something from the sociologist Emil Durkheim. And he kind of did this thought experiment where he gave his take on what it would be like if we somehow were to eradicate all 
crime and bad behavior in society. So he actually said that something interesting would happen in his view if we did that. And I'm wondering if you remember that. Yeah, yeah, I do. So, so yeah, uh, uh, Durkheim was uh, sort of this sociologist, I think from the, the 19th century, sort of this old school sociologist. Uh, and the idea here is that, um, you know, the thought experiment was once you sort of eliminate all transgressions and say that anything goes, uh, very quickly new taboos would arise. Uh, so basically, like once, you know, as behaviors become more and more accepted, uh, the the level of sort of moralism within the community remains the same. Just new behaviors become considered evil or bad or, or transgressive in some way. Um, and yeah, to me, this is, uh, this, I think he even gave a couple of examples about like, you know, even at like a, a, a monastery or something where, you know, everyone is sort of adhering to these, these, these codes, they still have like certain things that you're not allowed to do or uh, certain kinds of misbehaviors that, that they, uh, that they uh, condemn. So yeah, I, I think that there is something here with, with the luxury beliefs as well. You know, this is, so this is actually connects a little bit with, with my own research. Um, this is just a, a hypothesis that I have, which is that um, if you look at, so I, I've looked at some, some sort of big data from the World Value Survey and others, basically finding that um, young people have become much more permissive over time for kind of conventional uh, moral transgressions. So things like bribery and corruption and theft and these kinds of things, uh, young people, you know, even after controlling for education, income and political orientation, young people are still more permissive in 2020 relative to, you know, 1990 and 1970. Uh, and so, so on the one hand, it's kind of interesting that like, we're kind of like more non-judgmental, more permissive, whatever, more cool about all this stuff. But on the other hand, you're seeing like a lot of strident moralism today among young people with sort of activism and social justice movements and so on. And one of my claims here is that like this kind of connects to this Durkheim idea, this Durkheimian idea that now that we have sort of allowed all these behaviors to proliferate, we're not judging them anymore, we're not condemning them, um, that void has been filled and it's been filled with these kind of new transgressions about what you say and what you post online and you know, all of these, uh, these other kinds of things are the kinds of things that you support your political views, uh, your social views. Um, if you hold the wrong views about various things, now we're going to condemn you. We, we, so I think in this case, this is a way for people to gain status by condemning others and bolstering themselves. And there is some, some psychology research on this too, that we tend to view people who, who sort of morally grandstand as, as being somehow more, more righteous in some way, because the implicit message here is that if I condemn you for doing something bad, I guess the onlookers think, well, I would never do that. Otherwise I wouldn't condemn you. So, you know, somehow mm -hmm. by condemning you, that makes me look good. Um, and, and so there's that element. And then I, I think there's also this element, not only of them trying to like lift themselves up, but they're trying to cut down their rivals as well. They're trying to cut other people down by coming up with these new kinds of transgressions that, mm -hmm. that didn't necessarily exist even a few years ago. Like it, what's, what's crazy to me is that like now you can even go through someone's feed. And like, if I find a tweet that you posted from 2009, uh, somehow, even though in 2009, that tweet was fine, I can cancel you today. That, that kind of thing is, uh, it's kind of interesting from a sort of psychological perspective. Yeah, it, it, it we, we are seeing that more and it is fascinating, but I'm interested in this idea that, yeah, these are, these are basically tools. These are mm -hmm. like cultural weapons used primarily to compete against people that you view as competitors. And so that speaks a little bit to the intra-class 
conflicts that we've been talking about. Are you familiar with Peter Turchin's idea of elite overproduction and how that relates to the, the decline or instability of civilizations? Yeah, I've read, uh, I think I read that piece in The Atlantic, was it last year? Um, and yeah, I, I read a little bit of his blog uh, uh, about this elite overproduction and sort of the intra-elite conflict stuff. So yeah. Yeah. So the basic idea is, so Peter Turchin is a, I guess you would say like scientific historian or something. So he's from like quantitative ecology or some field like that, but he's mm -hmm. trying to understand in a more quantitative and somewhat even predictive way cycles that happen in history. And, you know, one thing that you can observe over and over again in history is civilizations rise, they mm -hmm. do their thing for some amount of time and they eventually decline, right? So you can think of ancient Rome or any other ancient civilization that we might name. And according to Turchin, as I understand him, a key factor in destabilizing societies when they're on the decline comes from, at least in part, elite overproduction. And what he means by that is when society makes too many potential elites, but there are not enough slots in the power structure, meaning high paying jobs or high status, culturally influential jobs, there are more people who feel entitled or that they should be an elite in such a position than there are actual positions. And so this leads to a like runaway intensification of competition among those elite or elite adjacent people for those limited number of slots. And they basically go to war with each other and that leads to cultural instability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I, yeah, I, I read a couple of chapters now. This is, this is uh, bringing back some, some of the, the things that, so I read like, I think it was war and peace and war where he discusses mm -hmm. this. Um, I think I specifically just read those chapters cause I found it particularly interesting. Um, and I've, I've heard others sort of riff on this idea too. Um, uh, Wesley Yang, the, the journalist and others, you know, they sort of, they refer to what we have today as a, you know, the, the sort of Twitter class, the overeducated precariat of like, you know, people with advanced degrees or people from fancy universities, uh, but they're not making money commens commensurate with, you know, their, their education level, at least like as they believe that they should be earning, you know, mm -hmm. uh, their sort of expectations uh, were higher than, than whatever the outcome happened to be. I think there is some, some truth to this. I remember, for example, something about how like the number of households that are worth $10 million or more has increased by like some, some like substantial amount since the 1980s, you know, adjusted for inflation. But, you know, of course, like all of the, the influential uh, positions in government, you know, like the number of senators and congressmen or Congress, you know, representatives and uh, the president, you know, of course, like those are all fixed. The number of positions at elite media organs and universities are all fixed. I mean, like, so, so, you know, of course I'm, in, I'm a PhD student. I, I, I think, are you a PhD student or you're, you, you've graduated, right? I graduated a number of years ago. Okay. So you've probably heard like, you know, all of the jokes about how hard it is to get an academic position and how oh, yeah. like, you know, I mean, they're in, not like, just the jokes 1980s. either. It's, it's yeah. true. Right. Yeah. 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 I think like it's, it's framed as a joke just to, to help cope with yeah, like yeah. how dire it is. Yeah. Uh, but it is like, you know, I, I, you know, hear from, from young grad students, you know, I talk to you, they say like, you know, you know, when my supervisor was my age, you know, 30 odd years ago or whatever it was, uh, you can like, you could write two papers. If you get two pu uh, published papers, then you can get like a pretty good mm -hmm. uh, academic post somewhere, like a tenure track job, two or three papers. Today, that might get you, like that might make you competitive for a postdoc. 
you know, like the, mm-hmm. the sort of like a PhD glut, more and more people are getting degrees, but the number of faculty positions has remained the same. I mean, which I guess like maybe there's like a conspiratorial element here of like, this is why, you know, we're constantly saying more people should go to college because, you know, a lot of, a lot of highly educated people are hoping to get jobs uh, at whatever the universities happen to open up or whatever. Um, and I think there is like, like something, something going on here where, oh, actually I just read this article too about this, about how there was this influencer. I don't remember her name, but she got a job as like a sports journalist, like completely on the strength of like the number of Instagram followers she had. And apparently like this started like this sort of social media firestorm because all of these people were commenting and attacking her saying like, you know, why did I go to Columbia journalism school? I should have just gone on Instagram and gotten some followers or something like Mm -hmm. that. Like basically the people who followed the, uh, the sort of preordained expected path of, you know, go to college, go to grad school. This is how you get into journalism. And then like some random person who I don't even know if she went to college at all, gets a bunch of Instagram followers and bypasses, just jumps the line and gets this this sort of prestigious uh, position. And I think this is sort of indicative of that intraly competition idea of like just a lot of bitterness uh, and a lot of anger, I think, um, among among educated people. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really is true. Like if you think about politics at the highest level, there are truly in many cases, a literally fixed number of spots. Like we've had a hundred senators mm-hmm. since the inception of the Senate and it's, mm-hmm. it's never gone up. When you think about academia, you know, I would say the number, I don't know the exact numbers, but the number of tenure track professorships has gone up marginally. It's gone up much slower than the number of people seeking those positions. And when you think about something like college education, you know, everyone is now expected to get this. And, you know, what what that coupon allows you to get is much less than it used to be. And people do really treat it as a coupon. Once you have that piece of paper, your expectation as a holder of it is that you can simply exchange it for whatever you perceive to be a good or influential position in society. And, you know, that's the dynamics there are are fascinating. And even when you think about social media, you know, in some sense, um, you know, Twitter and the internet and Facebook and all of these things, they allow you to have maximum reach. But, you know, when you, when you study these things, we all know that, that, that it's dominated by Pareto distributions. You know, it's not everyone's going to become a social media influencer with a million Instagram followers. It's going to be a tiny sliver of people. So there's this sort of like, you know, this pervasive 80, 20 effect where more and more people are having more or more, more and more a smaller slice of people are having a magnified level of influence. And there's this larger chunk of people that's having uh, a level of influence or status that they believe to be well beneath what they're entitled to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've, I've sort of been looking at recently, I, I was reading this book called Dataclism. I can't remember the author's name. Uh, it came out a few years ago, but I, I would imagine that these findings still hold, which is that uh, on, on social media, I think it was specifically about Twitter uh, that like the the Gini coefficient on of like followers on Twitter is actually higher than wealth in America. Basically, like uh, it's it's actually much easier to make a million dollars than to gain a million Twitter followers. Hmm. Uh, and and so yeah, there is like you know of course like we talk a lot about the income inequality, the wealth inequality in the country, and how you know whatever the top one percent has this much compared to the bottom fifty percent. But in terms of um, like, yeah, so social media, social influence and those kinds of things, it's actually even more uh, skewed 
than than that in, in terms of like popularity for for you know musicians book sales like anything in like a creative occupations writing as well um yeah there's there is this sort of vast uh this vast uh, in, inequality there um between those between those two two groups like the, the haves and the have nots or whatever um one thing that you brought up, uh, you mentioned this idea of like having the, the coupon or the piece of paper. Uh, well, first, I wanted to say that it reminded me of, um, you know, speaking of how dire academia is, something like only 5%, I, I just read this article, it was in Nature, that 5% of people with PhDs, you know, newly new graduates will go on to obtain a tenure track job at a university. It's mm-hmm. 5%. So, you know, you have like a one in 20 chance, uh, 95% likelihood that you're not going to get that that dream job. One thing I find interesting in academia, though, is that like that's still sort of expected that even though we all know 95% of you are not going to get a job in academia, the expectation is you're going to do this, you're going to get a postdoc, you're going to go on to do that. You're going to bring um, in grants for the university. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but this other thing, you know, the, this piece of paper idea, uh, I was thinking, you know, okay, so when I back to this marriage idea for luxury beliefs, you know, I was talking to people about this, you know, a lot of people will say, um, you know, that, that marriage is just a piece of paper, you know, and it's sort of in defense of cohabiting or, you know, sort of in defense of like marriage isn't that important. It's it's really just a piece of paper that we all pretend is something important. Uh, and, and it's sort of like, um, I don't know, it, it, it sort of denigrates the whole idea of, of marriage, I guess. It's just a piece of paper. But I, the way that you phrase it as, as a the academic degree, the diploma or whatever, like as a piece of paper, I, I very seldom hear uh, highly educated people refer to to degrees or or um, yeah these academic credentials as just a piece of paper, and I, I find this interesting because you know on the one hand you know, okay so if marriage is just a piece of paper but shouldn't also you know your college degree is just a piece of paper too like what's so special about that but I think part of the reason why it's so seldom referred to as that way is because they they derive most of their social status from their education and they don't want yeah. to denigrate it. Yeah. I think I think that's right. Um, part of the reason I speak this way, this you know, it's probably an unconscious thing that I learned very early on <laughs> that I can't shake. Is you know, I I have a I have a coupon from Harvard, and it's redeemable. <laughs> it's redeemable at all sorts of places for all sorts of stuff. Trust me. Um, yeah. But you know, I often refer to it that way, and I'm not even I'm not even thinking about it. But you know, I, I was a first generation college student, so I I didn't necessarily grow up in an environment where it was talked about in the other way. So, oh, right, right. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've just sort of internalized that. So it's, it's prestigious, but it, but it is also a piece of paper, whereas, you know, that would maybe be considered sacrilegious in other social circles to talk about it that way. Yeah. I kind of like, you know, it, it was the sad thing. Like if, if you read like too many statistics, like it can like really, I don't know, either make, make your perception of the world more accurate or warp it in a way that can sort of ruin it. But you know, once I learned, for example, that like once you get into a top university, um, your likelihood of graduation is is virtually guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Harvard, Yale, uh, something like ninety eight or ninety nine percent graduation rates. And so, once I realized that getting the um, the letter of admission is more important, like once you get the letter of admission, like that's actually more important than the degree itself. Yeah, you really that, have to screw up. Yeah, you yeah, they they make sure that you pass basically. And so like on graduation day, I remember like my family was really happy and I was like, you know, this was basically expected to happen. Like is this really that exciting? <laughs> like we all knew that we were going to graduate, right? Um this is sort of like getting in is the hard part, but but graduating isn't actually actually that difficult. So we should have actually celebrated when I got in. So So what are you actually working on for your PhD research? 
yeah. So a couple of different things. So I, I just published a paper in evolutionary psychology. Uh, it was actually about COVID, uh, finding that people who were more uh, concerned about contracting COVID were more morally judgmental than people who were less concerned. Uh, so a lot of my research is actually on moral judgment. And uh, is a lot of this is, like I said before, inspired by Jonathan Haidt's work on sort of moral disgust, uh, moral judgment, political differences in, in sort of moral condemnation. And the thing that I'm working on right now is uh, about the, the age, you know, sort of the relationship between age and moral judgment and how there is something going on here with, you know, across time, younger people have become uh, more morally permissive. And my other interesting finding is that um, older people are more judgmental than, than younger people for a variety of different kinds of, of moral violations, controlling for uh, political orientation and, and all these other kinds of um, you know, important sociodemographic characteristics. Interesting. So people who were the most afraid of contracting COVID tended to be the most judgmental. Does this tie in with, and I don't really know too much about this area, but the idea that you know moral disgust feelings related to moral disgust actually relate to our aversiveness to literal biological contagion and sort of drive, you know, the more disgusted you are by stuff, the more you tend to discriminate in-group versus out-group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's this idea of the, the behavioral immune system, which is, you know, sort of the, the body's response to, to potential contaminants. So, you know, so there may be over um, sort of physical disgust and moral disgust, um, you know, research on, you know, if people sort of experience this emotion of, of physical disgust, they're subsequently more judgmental and, and sort of more, more cautious and, and less, or sort of, sort of less permissive uh, for, for a variety of different kinds of behaviors. And, and like you're saying, they're uh, more sort of groupish, more favorable to the end group and, and less favorable toward the out group. So there is something, something there as well. I mean, my finding on, on, on COVID and moral judgment, you know, of course, like, I think it was, we, we sort of predicted in advance. And I think a lot of people would that if you're highly worried about COVID, then you would be uh, harsher towards people who violate, uh, vi you know, can commit moral violations that are, that could potentially spread contamination. So people who say sneeze uh, without covering their mouth or uh, use someone else's toothbrush without their permission, mm -hmm. things like that. Like you would sort of like, if you're highly worried about COVID then being worried about those things makes sense. But we also found that uh, people who were worried about COVID were also uh, more judgmental for uh, transgressions like um, sort of uh, uh, bribing someone to, to jump ahead in line or uh, sort of uh, turning your back on your boss at work or uh, sort of hmm. doing these kinds of like, uh, fairness violations, betraying people, uh, violating uh, uh, some kind of like a agreement, a loyalty, these kinds of things. Um, so it wasn't just about contamination. And so, you know, I, I think there is this kind of um, like this error management thing going on here, where if people are highly concerned about a, an infectious disease, then they're subsequently going to be hyper cautious towards any kind of wrongdoing that could potentially uh, inflict more harm on them. So there's already this danger that exists. And so I'm not going to take any chances and I'm going to condemn anyone who, who could pose extra, an extra level of danger to me. That's sort of the idea here. Um, hmm. And one of the more judgmental over time as a result of COVID. So, you know, we, we ran studies in, in March and then later in May, people in May 
were harsher than people in March, regardless of their level of concern over COVID. And we speculated, we don't know this for sure, but we speculated that this might be the result of prolonged exposure to uh, this ongoing pandemic that, you know, as the pandemic wore on, people became uh, much more sort of hypervigilant towards uh, any kind of, of moral wrongdoing. And, you know, I couldn't help but connect that to like, you know, maybe things are calmed down now, like things are sort of after the vaccines had, had been released and maybe things are, are cooling down somewhat. But for a while, people were, were very judgmental about, say, like mask wearing and, and hand washing and all of these things. And I mean, it, to, to me, it makes sense. It's sort of a, it's an adaptive response, I think. You know, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you could potentially get sick, it, it makes sense to be much more cautious. Interesting. Well, is there anything, Rob, that you want to leave people with? Um, any final thoughts on what we've talked about or... Or can you tell people where to find you in your writing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've 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 covered a lot of interesting things here. Um, you can find me at robkhenderson.com and follow me on Twitter at robkhenderson. Awesome. Well, Rob, uh, I think you're you have a really great social media presence. You've sort of uh, how do I describe it? You, you've carved out like a nice niche for yourself. So I always know that your feed is going to contain. It could contain a number of things, but they're all within sort of a, a fairly tight range of topics. So I don't know. It's like picking up a magazine that's about you know one topic. I always know that I'm going to get something interesting in the general area of human nature and human psychology. And you also have a, a newsletter that I subscribe to. And I don't subscribe to many, but, but yours is one of the more interesting. I appreciate that. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick.